Normally it would be next Sunday, July 2nd, that I would be talking to you on what we call a 4th of July uh, message. But I've switched that around, and we're going to have sort of what I would call a 4th of July message that I think will be a blessing to you this morning. But I'm doing that because next week we will be uh, celebrating the communion table again where we partake of those elements. And uh, the Lord has impressed upon me that I need to go back and bring that other message, the second part, to that one I gave back in May 7th entitled, When You Cannot Forgive. And all of us have been there, and perhaps we will be again. And we need to go back and, and look at that one more time, and I think it's a perfect time around the communion table. So I pray that you'll pray about that and also make every effort to be here next Sunday if uh, the Lord will allow that and that he will bless you as we talk about that next Sunday. But this morning, I want to share with you Psalm 33. We've been there before, but you're going to find it quite different this morning. Psalm 33, and that chapter is all about God's sovereign plan for Israel and the nations. It's all about God's sovereign plan for Israel and the nations. Why is this so significant? First of all, we need to know what God has to say about that subject. And secondly, we need to know that we're right on the edge, I believe, with good reason from Scripture and what we see worldwide going on of God fulfilling Psalm 33. And we begin in your outline with the central theme, if you can even see it out there in the dark. But the central theme, and by the way, it isn't made dark so you can sleep, so stay with me. The central theme of Psalm 33. The central theme. When you're looking at a specific portion of Scripture, it's helpful if you search out what's the theme of that passage. What is the central thrust of that passage? Well, the central thrust of And the theme of Psalm 33 is found in verse 12. Verse 12. There you read these words. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Now what's the interpretation though? You've got to get to that as you're trying to analyze the scripture, Psalm 33, and that's the theme, the central thrust. But what's the interpretation? He's talking here about national Israel, but may I say actually national redeemed Israel. But in your outline there, it's national Israel. I think about her past, Israel's past. In Deuteronomy 26, verses 17 through 19, Moses is addressing them just before he's going to be leaving them, going home with the Lord. He said, you have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances and listen to his voice. The Lord, the Lord has declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you and that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you on high above all nations which he has made And he'll do so for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. That's her past. That's the promise from God to her. But what about her present? What's going on right now? Now for over 2,000 years since the nation of Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as her Messiah, her Savior, When the leaders of the nation cried out, we will not have this man to reign over us. And they took him and had him crucified. Since that time, a great blindness 
in part, has come over the nation. God has placed His program with Israel on hold. And now He turns and offers salvation to the Gentiles as well as to the Jew. But His program with Israel today is on hold. It is true. It is true that in 1948, Israel became a nation once again after over 2,500 years of being scattered throughout all the nations under the Gentile domination. But even today, she is a divided nation. Even her capital city, Jerusalem, is only partially under her control, as you know. And though there are more and more Jews, and we praise God for this, that are coming to saving faith in Christ, their numbers are still relatively very few as the nation continues in her rebellion against God and against His anointed Son, their only Savior and Messiah. But what about her future? That's what Psalm 33 is about. That's her future. This psalm's all about that future. That's what the central theme and thrust of Psalm 33 is all about. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. And listen to this and rejoice in it. Paul adds to that. In Romans 11, he says, Now, if their transgression, meaning the Jewish people, if their transgression is riches for the world, and you are a recipient of those riches, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, meaning you and I hear the gospel and get saved, how much more will their fulfillment be? And then he declares in that same chapter, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, it doesn't mean everybody's getting saved. It means that God offers salvation to the Gentiles, the whole world. What will their acceptance be? And I love how he puts it, but life from the dead. Now those are profound words of the fulfillment of Psalm 33. So the interpretation, speaking about national Israel, redeemed national Israel. In fact, we read about the fulfillment of this over in Isaiah 66. This is great. Isaiah closes with these words. God says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? This is not talking about 1948. Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Says the Lord. Or shall I who gives uh, delivery shut the womb? Says your God. And the process of this marvelous birth of the nation of Israel, the redeemed nation, is described in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And I believe we're right on the edge of God fulfilling that. Number three, though, the application. There certainly is an application here. And what would that be? Well, part of it would be the redeemed body of Christ today, you and me. So the application of the redeemed body of Christ. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Not only did God choose the people of Israel to be His possession, He's also chosen every person who makes up and will make up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ today. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 we read, But you are a chosen people. A race, I'm sorry. A royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. By the way, that's what worship's all about right there. That you may proclaim those excellencies. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have 
received mercy. So there's an application there, certainly. And then this verse also can and should be applied to any nation that proclaims and embraces the one true God of the Bible as its God. Having said that, having said that, our nation was founded, or if the founding fathers did seek to put God first and honor Him, but we were not truly a Christian nation. We were not called by God directly like the nation of Israel is called. But we were back then a nation founded on Christian principles where religious freedom was fought for and established. You know, back there in the 1776 in that era, that the Bible was central to in many a home and in our government and in our schools. In fact, you can find verses chiseled all over in D.C. on those buildings still. In fact, schools such as Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were founded as Bible schools. Also as a nation, we have supported Israel, world missions, and the freedom of religion. But now, but now, all of that has changed. It is changing. We are now experiencing major dramatic changes in these United States as people in mass have turned and are turning away from God and His written revelation in the Bible. And the result is that He is now withdrawing His blessing upon this nation that once He so wonderfully blessed. So the central theme of Psalm 33 is verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. And that brings us to the next movement, though, of this psalm. God's people must be a people of thanksgiving and praise. That is certainly going to be true of national Israel when they're redeemed and become a nation, but it's to be true of you and me right now. Verses 1 through 3, what how beautiful way it begins. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. We tried to do that this morning a little bit. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now you need to see the connection to the previous psalm, Psalm 32. There's a connection there. Psalm 32 is David's testimony of his being forgiven and restored back into fellowship with the Lord after he fell into sin. So it's a personal testimony here of David's. But he begins his testimony with these words, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As we are singing some of these songs that... uh, uh, Just as I am. I was thanking God that I am completely forgiven of all of my sins. There's so many. Omission, commission, pride, selfishness, and so forth. But he says, Bill, you're forgiven of all them. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And when you get to Psalm 33, it will be the nation that will be able to say that along with David. But notice how he ends Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And goes right into Psalm 33. We don't know that David wrote Psalm 33, but it's possible. But they sure blend together so well. Number two, God's commands to His people. God's command to His people. You're singing for joy. You're praising the one true God who stepped into your life and saved you. You're daily living your life continually thanking your God is a powerful testament. By the way, the world does not do that. The world cannot do it. 
You're the ones, you and I are the ones that can do that now. What a pleasure to God, what a sweet aroma that ascends up to to Him when we live our lives in this fallen, wicked, evil world that way. Your joy, your praise, your heart of thanksgiving, it deeply upsets and disturbs Satan and all of his emissaries, and it defeats them in their tracks. No wonder Isaiah tells us to put on the garment of praise. Great term, isn't it? Put on the garment of praise, he says. But thirdly, sing to God a new song. Sing to God a new song. You and I know that the world sings its song, but the Christian sings what? A new song. A new song. I can't but think of Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. He brought me up out of the... Well, actually, it says this, I waited patiently or intently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He has put a, what? New song. A new song in my mouth. Even praise to our God. And then He gives a testimony. Many will see it. You say, I'm sure glad they don't hear it. They will see it. They'll see your joy. They'll see your changed life. And they will trust in the Lord. Listen, that's a good emphasis for getting saved, isn't it? Do you have that new song? Do you know that you have that new song in your heart today? That God has put a new song that your feet are, you've been brought up out of that miry clay, that God has wonderfully saved you. He has wonderfully forgiven you of all of your sin. And He has placed your feet upon the rock, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given you a purpose. He's established your goings. But you have a new song in your heart. Even praise to our God. But this new song here in Psalm 33 is especially about Israel and the new song she's going to sing. A.C. Gabeline writes, In the New Testament we hear that the redeemed in His glorious presence, in God's glorious presence, sing a new song. Revelation 5.9 describes that. The 144,000 Jews that get saved and there are His evangelists which surround the Lamb on Mount Zion also sing a new song. Revelation 14. This new song will be redemption's fullest song. Sung above in the heavenly Jerusalem and sung on earth by redeemed Israel and redeemed nations. It will be the mighty, ever-increasing and never-ending hallelujah chorus. End of quote. So when God fulfills Revelation, or I'm sorry, verse 12, the new redeemed nation of Israel along with those nations who go into Christ's millennial reign are going to what? Greatly rejoice and sing that new song. So David's example of that in verse 32. And I'm now chapter 32. And now the nation fulfills it in chapter 33. But that moves us to the next point. God's people must not only be a people of thanksgiving and praise, but God's people must praise Him for His righteous character. You must praise Him for His righteous character. Verses 4 and 5 read, For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. That word for, the word for in verses 4 and 9 tells us why we must be a people of thanksgiving and praise to our God. First, the word of the Lord is upright. The word of the Lord is upright. God's Word is absolute truth, and He always does exactly what He says. Just how important are God's words then? 
I pray this morning thanking for this written revelation that so many have laid down their lives that you and I can have and we often take it so much for granted here. How important is that word? We're told that all scripture is inspired. It means it's a breath of God and it's profitable. Jesus declared man shall not live by bread alone. When I'm done here, you're going to leave here and you're going to go get some food. And you probably will need some food. Maybe you don't need some food, but eventually you will. Okay. But he says, you don't live by bread alone, but why? Every word. Did you get that? Every word, every single word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's how you live, he says. We need to marvel that every single word that came out of Jesus' mouth was ordained by God. I mean, every single word. The words, the word order, and even the inflection. Every single word. He didn't waste one single word that he spoke. And of course, a lot of that was written down in the Scripture for you and me. So just how important is this Word of God that is upright? It reveals His righteous character. But secondly, all His work is done in faithfulness. Verse 4. All His work is done in faithfulness. What does that mean? What does it mean? There are three major works of God. There's more, but there's three major works of God. His work in creating the universe, that's one, isn't it? And then there's His work in providing redemption for sinful, rebellious mankind. And then there is His work of reclaiming His dissected kingdom. And this really speaks of all three here before us. In each aspect of these three major works of God, He displays both His perfection and His faithfulness. For example, every person He saves, listen to me, every person He saves, He gets every single one home safely. Amen? Do you understand that? He loses not a one of them. How important is that? For example, he chose the nation of Israel to work out both his redemption plan and his kingdom plan. Satan stepped in though, didn't he? And sought to destroy both, even causing the nation of Israel to reject her Messiah and Savior and crucify him. And yet... This very psalm is God's declaration that He will redeem a remnant of Israel and make her once again a great, glorious nation. Number three, God loves righteousness and justice. That's verse five, the first part. God loves righteousness and justice, but this is not what we see in the world today. We don't see righteousness and justice being permeated. In fact, it would appear Satan's winning this war with God. And once again, this psalm is God's declaration that Satan will unquestionably lose. And the Lord will establish His righteousness and justice in the earth and throughout all His created universe. That word righteousness refers to what is right according to God's perfect standard. What's right is God's perfect standard. Justice, on the other hand, refers to weighing and rewarding one's response to God's perfect standard, either blessing or judging. I love Psalm 89, 14 through 16. You might want to put that like verse 5. Psalm 89, verses 14 through 16. It says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. Number four, though. God's people must praise Him for His righteous character. All His works are done in faithfulness. God loves righteousness and justice. But number four, the earth is full of the Lord's loving kindness. (laughs) The earth is full of the Lord's loving kindness. George Berger, B-U-R-D-E-R, 
said this in 1838, so we're going back a few years here. He wrote these words about God's loving kindness. In discoursing on the glorious perfections of God, His goodness must by no means be omitted. For though all His perfections are His glory, yet this is particularly so called, for when Moses, the man of God, earnestly desired to behold a grand display of the glory of Jehovah, the Lord said, in answer to his petition, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Thus intimating that he himself accounted his goodness to be his glory. And it includes that mercy, grace, long-suffering, and truth which are afterward mentioned. When it relieves the miserable, it is mercy. When it bestows favor on the worthless, it is grace. When it bears with provoking rebels, it is long-suffering. When it confers promised blessings, it is truth. When it supplies indigent beings, it is bounty. He continues, the goodness of God is a very comprehensive term. It includes all the forms of His kindness shown to men, whether considered as creatures, as sinners, or as believers. End of quote. Here's how Jesus put it. You're familiar with how He put it. He put it this way. Your Father, who is in heaven, causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. And He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I call that... God's loving kindness. Paul, the apostle, describes his goodness or his loving kindness with these words. What if God, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, here it comes, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Do you not marvel that God doesn't just immediately step in and just destroy this wicked, evil, rebellious world that blasphemes him day and night? mocks his son, slaughters his people as sheep. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. There's an example of God's loving kindness. And you wonder why he doesn't come back? I want him to come back. The older I get, the more I want him, the more I want him to come back. But you know what? God says, I've got a plan, and I'm going to save everyone I've got in that plan. Not a one will be lost. So God's people must praise Him for His righteous character. But now we move to the next part. God's people must praise Him for His sovereignty displayed in creation. Boy, and the world doesn't do that. The world, you talk about rebellion against that one. The God's people must praise Him for His sovereignty displayed in creation. Verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of its mouth, His mouth, all their hosts. He's talking there about the galaxies, the constellations, the stars, planets. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. In those words we have a testimony, don't we, from God Himself. First, God has displayed His awesome power. That's what He's saying. That's first. He's displayed His awesome power. Many times throughout the Bible, God clearly tells you and me that He created this universe instantly out of nothing, giving it immediately all its order and design. In fact, you know how the Bible begins. In the beginning, what? You say it with me. God created the heavens and the earth. Thank you. That's to keep you awake, by the way. Okay. 
Here in Psalm 33, once again, God tells us clearly that He spoke and it was done. He commanded it stood fast. And God's testimony to His creation of the universe is most glorious here in Psalm 33. We admit that. But the Lord then moves from the spatial heavens and His power on display there down and focuses right on the earth, this planet. And what does He do? He takes the greatest area here, all the deep, all the ocean, and talks about its depth and how He stacks waters on top of waters to say just a display of My power right here where you live that you see every day. But there's a danger. There's a danger. I should know because I've fallen in this danger repeatedly. That you and I will get lost in the wonder of His testimony. Listen to this. You'll get lost in the wonder of His testimony about creating the world and instantly out of nothing and the vastness of the universe and the glory of it and the depth of the oceans and completely miss why He testifies to His being the creator of this world. That's the danger here. If we miss the point being made... We're going to miss the great significance of Psalm 33. But let's hold that thought for a few moments and go to our next point. Number two, people must praise Him for the sovereignty displayed in creation. Number two, the inhabitants of the earth must fear this awesome God. The inhabitants, that's all of us. Everyone ever born, everyone who ever will be born, must fear this awesome God. Verses 8 and 9 again read, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For, there it is again, reason, cause, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Jesus gives just a tiny little example of what's going on here. When He and the disciples were out there on the Sea of Galilee and He was asleep in the boat and that terrible storm came up, it must have been a bad one. And they were so frightened, they woke with the Master, they said, they, they said to him, uh, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They thought they were gone. And he got up, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. Can you imagine that? I mean, you think your life is gone. You think you're going to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. You're going to drown. You're out there in the middle of this great vast sea, three miles long, I think it is. And you think you're going to drown. And you wake him up. I don't know what they thought he was going to do, but he wakes up and he what? says, hush, be still. What happened? You know the story. And the wind died down. It became perfectly calm. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When God steps in and reclaims this planet and deals with sinful man, the inhabitants of the earth will fear this awesome God. In Revelation, as he begins to do that, chapter 6, you get to the end of that chapter, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? God's people must praise Him for His sovereignty displayed in creation. Fearing and revering this awesome God. But also, going down to our next major point, God's people must praise Him for His sovereign counsel. Now we're getting to the heartbeat of this passage. God's people must praise Him for His sovereign counsel. First, why? Because the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nation. Verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He 
frustrates the plans of the peoples. Here's the point. Behind God's testifying to his creating this universe instantly out of nothing with all of its order and design. With all of its planets, galaxies, and trillions upon trillions upon trillions of innumerable stars. All of that. Here is a reason that he directs man's attention to the depth of the ocean. And the vast amount of water he created instantly out of nothing there. Here's the impact of this psalm. Just as God's word instantly brought into existence out of nothing, this entire universe, including the depths of the oceans here upon the planet, even so will the word of his counsel come to pass. Satan, one of the highest and most powerful of all the angels God ever created, can do all in his power, and God will grant him his hour even, which is about to come upon us, to stop God's counsel. God, his declared plan, and indeed it would appear when one looks at the Jewish people, and one looks at this world under Satan's control, that he has stopped God in his tracks. In fact, it's a terrible, sad thing, dear people, and you've heard me say it from this pulpit before, it is a terrible, sad thing that the majority of God's people, the majority of those who are saved, believe and teach that God is through with Israel. They teach that. And all those promises He made concerning the nation of Israel have been permanently set aside, and God is now fulfilling His promises through the church, you and me, the redeemed folk, that make up both Jew and Gentile today. Amazing that that's what the mass of people believe, even redeemed. But look down at verses 16 and 17. 16 and 17. You're beginning to put this together. God says, The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does he deliver anyone by its great strength. What is God saying here? How does this tie together? Well, this is really for Mark and Catherine. I tell you that for this reason. You can look in all your theological books, you will not find this term. It's one coined by me. Now, I'm hoping they'll take it to Ethnos 360 and make it famous, you know. Okay. I'm going to give you a a theological term I made up, okay? Here it is, because it'll help you to remember Psalm 33 like never before. I call this, here it goes, a sarcastic superlative contrast. A sarcastic superlative contrast contrast. God is saying to them, you amass all the armies of the world. Give it all you've got. Gather together your greatest heroes, warriors, generals. Provide for your vast army, your best horses. Provide the best weaponry you have in existence. With all this great power of yours, you dare come up against me and annul my counsel, my declared, decreed plan. Think again! That's why I told you I spoke the universe into existence out of nothing immediately. That's why I told you, look at the depth of the sea. And you're going to come up against me and annul my plan? What's going on here? I think what he said in Isaiah 40, I think that you used this, uh, Mark, when you preached. Lift up your eyes on high. Look around. See who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by numbers. He calls them all by name. You mean trillions upon trillions? God said, I know every one of them. Not a one's missing. I know every one of them. I call them by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not a one of them is missing. And then this mighty God declares concerning these nations with all their great might and power and their plans. He said, behold, the nations are what? They're like a drop in the bucket. He goes beyond that. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Do you have any dust in your home, your furniture, under your bed? What does he do? He takes just one little tiny speck.
speck of dust. He said these nations of the world, with all their power and might and wisdom, are nothing but a little tiny speck of dust. That's the contrast, dear ones. That's the point behind God's testimony here of Psalm 33. It's wonderful to look at that and talk about creation and know that God said that, but that's not why He said that. It is a sarcastic, superlative contrast of His awesome power versus all the power of the nations who are going to fulfill the first part of Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us drive the nation of Israel into the sea and destroy her forevermore. God says, You better stop and think again. All of your might, your power, everything you're going to bring against me, you better stop again as I've showed you the contrast of my power versus yours. Number two. The Lord's counsel stands forever. Stands forever. Verses 11 and 12. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. I'm sorry the church questions that when it comes to His counsel on Israel. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. God says, it's as good as done. Will God fulfill His promises to Israel? Even though Satan in the world of nations stands against her with every intent, as I said, of driving her into the sea and obliterating her out of existence? Will God who saved you get you safely to heaven? Or will some of us fall away and be forever lost? What comfort in this exceedingly wicked, evil world to know that this God is my God. What a comfort of my heart. And I can completely rest in His everlasting reassuring words, even though I might watch this, the evening news. And all the evil and wicked going on in this world today. I can completely rest in His everlasting and reassuring Word. The Word of the Lord is upright. He spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. Why will the Lord's counsel stand forever? Well, verse 13 and 14 tells you a reason why. Because of His position. Again, this is back to that sarcastic, superlative contrast here. Verses 13 and 14, the Lord looks from where? What's it say? From heaven. (laughs) He's not down here trying to scramble here. He's, I'm looking from heaven. He sees all, every single one of the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So because of his position, his counsel stands forever. But secondly, because of his omniscience, verse 15. I like how he describes it here. He who fashions the heart of them all. Oh, they didn't just show up. No, he had a part in each one of them, didn't he? Psalm 139. He who fashions the heart of them all. He who understands all their works. They're not going to pull anything off the wool over God's eyes. They're not going to be able to take Him by surprise. And then we see, number C, the futility of not trusting Him. That's that superlative contrast again. Sarcastic here. The futility of not trusting Him. Verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. That'd be like all the weaponry you can mass together and the best you've got, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Talk to Sennacherib of Assyria about that. I mean, after all, he was moving against Israel, defeating, in fact, he had defeated other nations as well, and he defeated all those major cities that were out there, those outposts. And finally, he's got Jerusalem here, and here's Hezekiah, and Isaiah's inside the city. It's all locked up, and he's got the thing completely surrounded, and he is mocking them. Well, Hezekiah, buddy, if you can find men to put on the horses, let's do that. I'm going to make you drink your own urine, eat your own dung. That's what I'm going to do. 
And of course, Hezekiah knew he was in trouble. And he went to God and he prayed. And Isaiah the prophet came back and he said, here's what's God. He said, not an arrow will be fired in this. Wait a minute. 185,000 Assyrian hardened warriors and not one arrow will be fired in this city? You see what God's saying? When God speaks with power and might, you better stand in awe and fear. And you know the story. That next morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were found dead. The angel of the Lord slaughtered them. I think of the battle of Arbella. The Persian army numbered how many? 500,000. But they were defeated by Alexander and his Grecian army of only 50,000, just as God prophesied through Daniel the statesman years before. Even in modern history, Napoleon led more than half a million men into Russia. You know that story. They were defeated by the terrible winter in that country. And what about the futility of trusting in some great hero? We can't ever forget about the Philistine and that great mighty warrior Goliath. And a little shepherd boy goes out and God says, that's not how armies win. It's my word. And David defeated Goliath and took his head off of him, as you recall. And here's God's promise to the people of Israel from the prophet Hosea. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. In Zechariah 4, 6, he says, Not by might nor by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And we come now to that last part, God's commitment to those who trust him. God's commitment to those who trust him. Verses 18 and 19 first. What God will do for His people. What God will do for His people. Verses 18 and 19. Behold. Isn't that interesting? You see how it all ties together? Now He said, I got your attention. I got your attention. This superlative, sarcastic contrast. Behold. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope for His loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death. And to keep them alive in famine. Reminds me of what He said to... Asa, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And he's still doing it today. Still doing it today. So God's commitment to those who trust him. First, what God will do for his people. Verses 18, 19, what God will do for his people. But then our necessary response. Our necessary response to God. Look at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. That's where we are, aren't we? God says, I want you to wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. Can I wait upon this God that just says, I want to contrast my awesome power and glory and wisdom and might to anything here upon the earth that can come against me? Our soul waits. But secondly, verse 21, for our heart rejoices. Isn't that good? Our heart rejoices. That's how the psalm began. And Israel is going to rejoice. Oh my, the day's going to come when they're going to rejoice like never before as God causes that nation to be born in redemption in a day. But we rejoice. And then the latter part of verse 21, we trust. We trust. For our heart rejoices in because we trust in His holy name. That's what God asked you and me to do. I know it's getting more darker and darker in this whole world. But I'll tell you what, this is my God. This is my God. I can trust in Him. And finally... Verse 22, we have hoped in you. We have hoped in you. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. And what does Romans 5, 5 say? And hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. I hope that you got the significance of Psalm 33. It's wonderful to see the glory of his power in creation and the depth of the oceans, but that's not what that's about. It's a contrast. 
He's saying, I'm telling you, I will do exactly what I have declared in the written word of God I'm going to do. Whether it pertains to you or the nation of Israel or this world, I will do exactly what I said I do. Let all hell come against me. Let Satan and all of his minions have their hour. They will fail because of the contrast of my great power. I annul their counsel and I establish mine forever. You know what? I'm going to go home to heaven. Are you? I'm going home to heaven. Why? Because he's my God. He's my God. And therefore, I'll fulfill that first part and the last part. My heart will be filled with joy. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just pray. There was a time when we as a nation loved the Word, loved righteousness. We judged sin. We even started Bible colleges, Bible schools. There were great revivals in this nation. We, we chiseled verses on our governmental buildings. Righteousness seemed to prevail, but that's not the case anymore. But Father, even though, and we grieve about that, and we do pray for this president, we pray for this administration, we just ask, Father, that you would accomplish your purpose through them and let your people be so powerful in prayer for them that, Father, you might even work in their heart and mind. You know my prayer, and I know it's a prayer of a lot of our people here. Father, I pray that a couple of those liberal leftist Supreme Court justices will be removed off the bench and that uh, President Trump and his administration in the Senate would be able to replace them with people who will stand for righteousness, for the unborn, for the sanctity of marriage, that there might be a little bit of revival for our children and grandchildren. And Father, I thank you that though we look out in the world, and I, I can understand why somebody who doesn't know the Bible thinks, no, Israel's going to be driven into the sea, it's going to be the end of her, that we're going to end up with a one world government, it's going to be better for everybody. I can understand why they go there, but Lord, I'm in Psalm 33, and you have said, look at my awesome power. You try to name the stars, you try to count them. These nations are but one little speck of dust, totally insignificant when it comes to my power. And I annul their counsel, their plans. Israel will become a redeemed nation. And my heart cries out, O God, may it be soon. May it be soon. And as the Apostle John prayed, I think about us praying the same, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.